And um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading a little bit, but we're going to find our way. And I'm going to re-clip this little, this little mic so it doesn't fall off me. But we're going to find our way to Luke 15 again. And because um, there are a lot of pieces. I had a message planned on, and I might hit Romans 5 a little bit. But um, did anybody let them in? Oh, there, hey, there you are. Okay, I just saw your message. So um, what's up, guys? But anyway, I... Uh, well, I had a message plan. I actually had three messages planned. I've written more of the past three weeks than ever in my life. Um, but, I mean, I've written, I think, 50 handwritten pages this week. Um, but I had a message on Romans 5, and the whole t- it was great stuff, but the whole time I was just like, man, I just don't feel like this is it. And uh, Thursday night, the Lord finally took me back to Luke 15, and this, this is it. So we're going to go back. I taught on Luke 15 two weeks ago, but we're going to go pick up some pieces we left. So um, anyway, let me just start by reading. Um, actually, let's do offering real, real fast because I got some stuff at the end. I'm actually going to play a video for you at the end. So in the past couple of weeks, I've done my first illustration, and then this week we're going to do our first video. So anyway, and it's going to be Moana. So And then I'll cry. So uh, Kyle's getting married this week, and Megan. Wait, where's there's Megan? Where is Megan? She left. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but since Kyle's getting married this week, Kyle's going to take up the offering. 10% goes to the... No, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, anyway, so if you're going to give, um, raise your hand, throw your hand up, and then Kyle will get to you. I know most people give online, so if that's not you, then no big deal. But Kyle's going to pass it around. Everybody online, we're so glad that you guys are here. I'm going to give you the number to text because I've had people message and ask for this number, um, and I meant to write it in my notes today, so y'all just excuse me while I pull it up. But, um, but anyway, if you're watching online, I encourage you to give because, uh, I mean, the Lord calls us to give to the house we're fed from. Thank you. Um, so that there may be bread, bread in my house. But the number is 206-859-9405, 206-859-9405. Dream give, all one word. You can text that. It'll send you the link. You can give on the app, on the website, and everything else. So um, I just encourage y'all to do that. And uh, I said this last week. I think it's really cool that the Lord chose to fund the church exclusively through the faithfulness of the people in the church. I just That's awesome. So, um, so that's how we did it. Anyway, all right. While everybody online is kind of giving and doing that, I'm just going to read, and then we'll go into Luke 15. So, are y'all ready? I need y'all, need y'all awake, awake today. So, here we go. As I've studied more lately than ever in my life, I've come to a sobering realization. Now, I'm going to say some stuff today that's taking giant leaps, and I'm just going to ask that you wait until the end of the message to judge me for it. So, like this next statement is going to make a lot of you uncomfortable, and, but I'm going to qualify it later. All right. I've studied more lately than ever in my life, and I've come to a sobering realization. The gospel of the West and America is based on one major thing, sin. When you compare the theology of the West and the theology of the Bible and the early church, you see clearly that traditionally we have based everything on sin 
And the early church based everything on Jesus. So we talk about things frequently like, and I'm not even saying this is, I'm not going against this, but this is just, most of our messages talk about things like this. Um, that sin separated us from God. In John 1.3, it says this, Through him all things were made, without or apart or separate from him, nothing was made that has been made. Y'all good? Just reading scripture. Okay. We've made Adam's disobedience the main story and Jesus' obedience a footnote to the story. We start sharing the gospel by telling people how nasty they are. Jesus shared the gospel telling people who they really were. We argue things like predestination and total depravity. Jesus taught that he came to seek and save that which caused depravity in all. I told y'all. I mean, think about this. When, how, did you get, how did you and I get saved? I got, here's how I got saved. I, I share this a lot. Um, I got saved by somebody saying, your sin is awful, which sin is awful. But your sin is awful, you're really messed up, and you're going to die in that sin if you don't pray this prayer. So just to be clear, I felt bad about my sin, but feeling bad about your sin and saying yes to a covenant with Jesus are not the same thing. Because I know a lot of people who don't go out and murder people because they would feel bad about it and go to jail for it. That doesn't make them saved. You, you see what I'm saying? So I got saved because my sin was really, really bad when I was a kid. About six years ago, I actually got born again. Because six years ago, I decided, wait a minute, this isn't just about running from sin. This is actually about running into him. Do you see the shift? So, but, we, but when we start the gospel message with, you're awful, you're terrible, and if you don't repeat this prayer, you're going to hell. We've had a lot of people repeat the prayer because guess what? That's bad. Who wants to burn? You know what I'm saying, right? Oh, man, that, my sin is that bad. I need to repeat the prayer. And that's why we have a lot of quote-unquote Christians who have prayed the prayer and aren't in church and don't tithe, and don't have community, and don't read their Bible, and don't pray, because they didn't say yes to Jesus. They said no to their sin. That's not, that's not being born again. You, you understand this, right? It, being born again is not saying no to sin. There's a lot of unbelievers that say no to sin every day. So, we have a much easier time relating to Adam's sin than we do Christ's victory over Adam's sin. I'm going to need some amens because Hannah's not here this morning. So, let me, let me read Romans 5.18. We didn't read this as a kid for obvious reasons. I'm about to, to um, we're about to hear. Romans 5.18, this is in the NIV. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. That's why we didn't read that. Um, just to be clear, that doesn't say the elect. All right. Our actions of sinning 
did not cause our former identity to be destined for death. Let me just, one more time. The actions, this is kind of a review, but our actions of sinning did not cause our former identity to be destined for death. The broken identity of the first sin in the first Adam that we inherited is what sent humanity on a course for death. Okay? You can just go read Romans 5 tonight. You'll see that clearly. That what we were condemned for was not the actions of sin. The actions of sin resulted in, was the result of a broken identity that we received from Adam. So we weren't condemned because of our actions, or else the Israelites couldn't have been God's people. Because they messed up all the time, and yet he still made them his people. With me? What we were condemned for was what Adam was condemned for, which was the first broken identity that sin, the first sin, caused. See the difference, okay? So Jesus did not come to deal with our behavior because even if he dealt with our behavior but left the first Adam's sin untouched, it would have done nothing. That's what happened with the sacrifices. The sacrifices covered the actions. But the broken identity still remained under the actions. So no matter how many animals you killed, the broken identity still kept you in total, in a direction towards death. So what Jesus came to deal with was not behavior. He came to deal with the identity that causes the behavior. Okay. So our actions of sin, our actions did not cause our former identity to be destined for death. The broken identity of the first sin in the first Adam that we inherited is what sent humanity on a course for death. We weren't condemned because we were imperfect. We were condemned because of the act of Adam. Just super, just a lot of Bible right here, so y'all just hang with me. Therefore, Jesus did not come to deal with behavior, as I just said, he came to erase the act of the first Adam and the effect it had on humanity. All really good news. But this is, see, see even as I'm giving you all this good news, straight, I'm, everything I just read is a basically summary of Romans 5 in Josh language, right? But even as I'm reading this, something in us says, hold up, hold up. And, it, and that's because all we've, taught, all we've been taught is, is man, we're just nasty. One problem, that ain't what God says about us. Okay? This is what God has to say about us. This is what God has to say about himself. Okay. See Baxter Kruger, who's become one of my favorite theologians lately, says this. It was not the fall of Adam that set God's agenda. It was the decision to share the great dance with us through Jesus. Adam's, listen to this right here. Adam's plunge certainly threatened God's dreams for us, but that threat had been anticipated and already strategically overcome in the predestination of the incarnation. Jesus Christ did not become human to fix the fall, he became human to accomplish the eternal purpose of our adoption. And in order to bring our adoption to pass, the fall had to be undone. 
Jesus is not a footnote to Adam and his fall. The fall, and indeed creation itself, is a footnote to the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Saint Athanasius, from the, about the third, second or third century, one of the early church fathers, he said this, For the word, talking about Jesus, realizing, and this is, this is going to be an old school language, so you're going to have to decipher a little bit of this. For the word, realizing that in no other way would the corruption of human beings be undone except simply by dying. Yet, being immortal and the son of the father, the word was not able to die. For this reason, he takes to himself a body capable of death in order that participating in the word who is above all might be sufficient for death on behalf of all and through the indwelling word would remain incorruptible and so corruption might henceforth cease from all by the grace of the resurrection." I know this a lot. There's actually not one period in that entire statement. Um, so reading him is really difficult, but just commas everywhere. But he's saying, Jesus, the word, realizing that the only way our sin identity could be undone was death, yet also realizing that God is incapable of death, took on a body that was capable of death, so as to die as us, so that we could take on his body that is incapable of death. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Did, did y'all get this? I mean, think about, can God die? No. So realizing that, but also realizing that the only way that would be dealt with is death, took on the body. See, this is the problem. This is the problem. If we see God as the big, angry, big guy upstairs, and we see us as the nasty people that he is completely fed up with and wants nothing to do with, here's one problem. Why on earth would he waste Jesus? If we're nothing, if we're scum, if we're nothing... If we're one theologian that I completely disagree with everything he says, called Christian snow-covered dung. So if you ever, I'm not going to tell you who it is, so you don't even look him up. But, but if, if, this, if this is how we view them, one problem. This was not worth what God got out of it. Unless God saw Adam in the cool of the day, post-fall, within the fallen Adam and said, I'm going to get my cool today back. So Jesus, knowing this, takes on fallen flesh, dies on the cross so that we could trade our fallen flesh for immortality. To be clear, to be clear, the incarnation and the cross was not God beating the blank out of Jesus so he wouldn't have to do it to us. That's called penal substitution theory or penal substitution atonement. And what that is is a belief that's pretty rampant right now 
that the cross was God being so full of wrath toward our mess-ups that he wanted to beat the snot out of us, but instead sent Jesus to the cross to be beat the snot out of so that he wouldn't have to do it to us. You know what I'm saying? And it is funny. I say it in a funny way on purpose. But here's the reason. This is the reason why that's so dangerous is, again, it causes us to be nothing but these little people that just happen to get a glance of grace at Jesus on the cross, but we're still stuck in all of our bondage. And Jesus did not come so that, like I said last week, so that you could carry all your bondage better because you got the blood. Jesus came so that now that you got the blood, you no longer have bondage, even if you have bondage. All right. The incarnation was not about that. It was about Jesus entering into our darkness to get his kids back. Really, really, Jesus came to fix how we see God, and to do that, he also had to take care of the first Adam. So so there's not an argument that Jesus didn't come to take care of sin. He absolutely came to take care of sin. The argument is against why he came to take care of sin. He didn't come to take care of sin just because he needed to take care of sin. He came to take care of sin to get us back. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's a big difference because his aim was getting us back. And on the way to getting us back, he had to take care of sin. But if the aim was sin, he doesn't even care if we get back, which is why half the church doesn't show up on Sundays. Not here, but across America. Who cares? No, God absolutely cares. After 9-11, after 9-11, the churches were slammed across America. Slammed. Do y'all remember that? Well, some of y'all weren't even born by then, born then. Who was not born at 9-11, 2001? Sarah. <laughs> but the rest of y'all were super young. I mean, I was in, I think, third grade, fourth grade. Um, but I remember this, 9-11. And then the Sunday after, we showed up to church, and it was packed. And our church was never packed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I remember people showing up with tattoos one time, and we looked at them like they were Satan himself, Antichrist. You know what I'm saying? But, but after 9-11, they were packed. And do you know why? And I heard this, I heard this on a, 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 um, a talk, I guess you would call it, I don't know, from a theologian this week, that he said, throughout this pandemic, there's one major difference between the church's or the, the, the world's response to the church during the pandemic and the response to the church during 9-11. And the, both of them are the same, but both of them are different. In that 9-11, after it happened, the churches flung open to say, come in, we've got the answer, right? During the pandemic, all the churches were closed. So, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not judging, not saying anything like that. But what I am saying is, is that the world is still looking for the answer, which is why you saw all throughout last year, nothing but chaos. You turn on the news and it's literal chaos nonstop. And the reason is, is because we're looking for an answer but the church does not have the answer in the current paradigm of thinking. Because if people come in to try to find the answer and all we tell them is that they're snow-covered dung, guess what? They're going to leave still not knowing the answer. But if they come in and we say, I know who you are, that all of a sudden makes them realize this is what I've always been looking for. This is why the religious scholars spent every single bit of their days sending people away that were nasty. Jesus spent every single day of his ministry bringing those same people in toward him. I mean, so we need to run 
from, listen to this, we need to run from any theology that allows you to be in Christ and still partially in sin. If, <clears throat> if we are still even 1% in sin after we awaken to who we are now in Christ, the cross was not enough. Which is why, here we go, you ready? Which is why we still believe in the doctrine of the rapture. Because what we believe is that God has to come finish what he missed at the cross. And to do so, he has to get us out of here so that he can finish everything. One problem, he said it is finished at the cross. There's nothing else to be accomplished. Well, brother, have you seen around the world? I've absolutely seen around the world. And what I see around the world is not because darkness is getting bad. What I see around the world is because the church has done absolutely nothing. We've had the answers and we've sat around twiddling our thumbs hoping that we escape. Of course the world's going to lose their mind. I promise you right now, if every church today decided that we're going to plan as if we're going to be here for the next 500 years, I promise you we'd start seeing creation get out of its chaos. Maybe we should try it. You, you, do you know, listen, do you know why only Americans believe in that? Only Americans. Because our entire Christian experience is rooted in our lifelong struggle and warfare with sin. And Jesus says to that, what sin? You know what Paul says about the filling of the Holy Spirit? Today's Pentecost. This is what Paul says about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, does he say it's to give us power? I said, oh, yeah. That's what, we, that's what we said. Well, brother, you just need the power. You know what I'm saying? Is that what he did? Is that what the Holy Spirit? Listen, the Holy Spirit gives you power. It might not be the power you think. Lord, okay, help me. Help me, Lord. No? Here's what Romans 5 5 says. God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is what Romans 8 says. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The pouring out on Pentecost of the Holy Spirit, I'll quote Damon Thompson, was not to make us bilingual. That's a great thing. But the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost was to convince us of who we are on the other side of this. And if we teach that all that came to do was allow us to be able to speak in languages we didn't understand, we've completely missed the whole reason why we can speak in languages we don't understand. On the, on the day of Pentecost, they were speaking in all these languages of people that happened to be there. And do you know what they were speaking? Mysteries of the kingdom of God in all of their language. What mystery? The mystery that you've done absolutely nothing to deserve this, and yet now you are completely paid for. I, I, okay, Lord, I'm going to explode today. What was finished at the cross when he says it is finished? What, what, what was finished? Adam number one's identity in us and every single thing that came from it. Think about this. The God who walked in the cool of the day, God's son spirit. It wasn't just a big, it, was, it wasn't just God the Father in the garden. 
You know that, right? It was God, Father, Son, Spirit in a dance, completely united, yet not losing any single individuality within them. Walking in the cool, Jesus was in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam. You understand this? If he was eternal, which John 1 says he was, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, face to face. So if they're walking in the cool of the day with Adam, Adam falls, Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's hanging, and think about this, think about this. And when he says it is finished, I can't prove this, you can't disprove it. What does he have on his mind? For centuries. For centuries. The promise of Abraham, the promise of the Israelites, all the prophets, exile, 400 years of silence. They've gone through all these different, the, the flood, all this stuff. And now here Jesus is on the cross, moments away from getting Genesis 1 back. And he says, it's finished. He says, not to tell us die, taught us before. He says, Hebrew, kala, it's finished, my bride. Dies. Gives up his spirit. He doesn't die. Um, he dies, but only because he wanted to. But that's what was, what was finished. Was it our sins, past, present, and future? Absolutely. But do you know why it was our sins, past, present, and future? It's because he took care of the root that all of those came from. So I have bushes in my yard that I hate yard work. I hate it with a passion. I hate it just as much as I hate the devil. And um, <laughs> some days, maybe more. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but so I, I, I don't like trimming my bushes, so instead I just cut them down, and, um, typically. But there's one bush in our yard. I don't know why I'm looking at it. I'm picturing my yard right now. There's one bush in my yard that is, I don't know what kind of bush it is, but it is demonic. It when it, when it grows, it just like intertwines. Y'all know, does anybody know what I'm talking about? There's these bushes, and they're green. They're obviously green because they're bushes, but they, and they just intertwine everywhere. So you can't just like take five minutes, trim them up, go. You've got to take hours and trim every single little branch all throughout it. Okay? If I don't cut down, just got really loud. If I don't cut down the stump, then I've got to spend. Every single week when I cut grass, trimming up all these little twigs, right? And even when I trim them, guess what happens the next week? They all grow back. But that's how we've seen the gospel. That all God is doing all the time is trimming up, trimming up, trimming up, trimming up, trimming up, trimming up. And one day he's going to judge us. He's going to kill everything. He's going to burn everything. And then we're finally going to be free. That's called Plato, the Greek philosopher that did not believe in God, taught that. And if that's what we want to believe, that's awesome. We can't be a church anymore. What God, through Jesus, taught was that Jesus did not come to trim up man's branches. He came to chomp it down, chop it down, and then graft them into the vine of him. I am the vine, you are the branches. He came to chop it down and then graft us into where we should have been all along. Anything, anything theologically we have known or been taught that doesn't have God is love at its root needs to be thrown out and relearned. The problem is, as I'm realizing right now, and the reason few have done this, 
is if you grew up in the West, like all of us have, you might be left with very little and a lot of emptiness. The great news is God's specialty is filling emptiness where we once occupied it. We don't get to pick the agenda of what we didn't write. We do not get to determine what the agenda of the Bible is. Because we didn't write it. It would be illegal for me to take a book. I'm I'm about to release a book in September. So if I took that book, you got it, and you said, all right, I'm going to make this book about how to eat healthy. Or whatever. You know what I'm saying? You can't do that. It's illegal. Amazon would not allow you to do that because you didn't author the book. I could do that, but you couldn't do that. But this is how we see the Bible, is we say, well, this is what the Bible says, but this is how my religious framework and my thinking is, so I'm going to take all these verses. Typically what we do, I'm going to find all the verses that fit within that, and that's going to be what I'll live by. So, so we'll read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What we will not do is read John 3.17, which is God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the whole world might be saved. I I didn't hear that verse. I heard John 3.16. We see John 3.16 on bumpers. We never seen John 3.17. And in my opinion, this is going to be very heretical. In my opinion, John 3.17 is even more significant than John 3.16. Luke 15, Luke 15, before I take y'all a little too far. Y'all good? Anybody ready to stone me? Just kidding. Who said yeah? Did somebody say yeah? Was that Brandon? Brandon, that was you, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, Brandon, you're looking down. I'm just kidding. Your your hot dog's going to have a little extra. It's It's been sitting out for weeks. No, I'm just kidding. What'd you say? In the bush? In the bush, yes, yes. All right, here's, so here, as I'm reading this, just, I'm, I just want to remind you, quick note, because none of y'all were here the week I taught on this, so, but that's okay, it was Mother's Day. I, I am great with that. Luke 15, okay? Lost sheep is going to be number one. That's one out of 100. Lost coin, one out of 10. Lost son, one out of two. Now, now lost, lost in none of these deals with ownership. Just remember that. A hundred percent of these deal with misplacement. Number two, repentance. The Greek word, metanoia. Meta means together with. Noie or noeo, depending on where you're reading it, um, which is the other part of metanoia, the root, means to perceive with the mind that which is true. So metanoia together means a realignment of reasoning or a co-knowing. So in repentance, we agree with what God thinks about us. So when you are, I don't know, living in sin, this is why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, change how you think and realign it with how I think because the kingdom's here. So this is what he's talking about in repentance. The Latin word, the Latin word that we get metanoia through. So metanoia Greek goes through the Latin word and then comes to the English as repentance. The Latin word means penance. So the original Greek word means to realign how you think with what is right. 
The Latin word that it transferred to us through means penance, which is an outward suffering for something that you've done wrong. So this is why when you hear the word repent, we immediately think, Lord, I've got to do something to fix what I've done wrong, because that's where the Latin word came through. But if you're going back to the Greek and what Luke 15 says, he's not just talking about you slapping yourself on the wrist because you messed up. He's talking about you messed up because there was somewhere in you a misalignment with who you are. Okay. And then finally, before I read this, the word sin is hemarteia. Hemarteia in the Greek. It means missing or without form. And it deals with, as I've been saying, the broken identity of the first sin, not behavior. That's what the Greek word is. It's singular, sin. So in some of your Bibles, it'll say sins, um, and that's just the translator taking a big leap. But in the actual text, it's singular, one, sin. And it's not talking about actions. It's talking about the root of those actions. So now that we have all that down, uh, Luke 15, and I'm just going to read it until, uh, until I feel like it's good to stop. Many, and I'm going to read this in the Passion Translation, by the way. I might go back in the NIV, but it's just, the NIV was a little dry on this one, so I'm going to just read it from here. Uh, verse 1. Many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. This raised concerns with the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law, of course. Indignant, they grumbled and complained, saying, Look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and welcomes them all to come to him. In response, he gave them this illustration. So, as I read these, just have this in mind. The reason he's giving these illustrations is he's talking about the notorious sinners. We good? He's talking about the sinners that are around him. So when he speaks of those who are lost in these, in these next, you know, parables, he's talking about the ones that are around him. Just keep that in mind as I read this. Verse 4, there was once a shepherd with a hundred lambs, but one of his lambs wandered away and was lost. So the shepherd left the ninety-nine lambs out in the open field and searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb. He did not stop until he finally found it. With exuberant joy, he raised it up and placed it on his shoulders, carrying it back with cheerful delight. Returning home, he called all his friends and neighbors together and said, Let's have a party. Come and celebrate with me the return of my lost lamb. It wandered away, but I found it and brought it home. Jesus continued, In the same way, there will be a glorious celebration in heaven over the rescue of one lost sinner, that's from the word hemarte, I just, I just mentioned. Who repents, same word I just mentioned earlier about repentance, and comes back home and returns to the fold, more so than for all the righteous people who never strayed away. Verse 8, then he gave them another parable. There once was a woman who had ten valuable silver coins. Ten valuable silver coins. When she lost one of them, she swept her entire house diligently searching for searching every corner of her house until that one for excuse me that one lost coin 
When she finally found it, she gathered all her friends and neighbors for a celebration, telling them, come and celebrate with me. I had, a lo- I had lost my precious silver coin, but now I found it. That's the way God responds every time one lost sinner repents and turns to him. He says to all his angels, let's have a joyous celebration for that one who was lost I have found. Metanoia, the awakening, awakening of your mind to that which is true. Realignment of one's reasoning. <clears throat> and then finally, the, the most famous one. And I refuse to call him the prodigal son because, well, I'll show you in a minute why. Verse 11. Then Jesus said, Once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. Shortly afterward, the young son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all that was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in that land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished that he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. It's coming to his senses. And he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house, and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to call your son, to be called your son. Please just treat me like one of your employees. That sounds a lot like the sinner's prayer to me. Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. That's part of my salvation prayer. Okay. A little too close to home. So, the young son set off for home. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming dressed as a beggar, and great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out. To meet him, he swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I can never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. And the father interrupted and said, Son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, Quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I will place it on his shoulders. Now remember, up to this point, what has the son done? Nothing. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, which, by the way, would allow the son to make transactions in the father's name. And I will put it on his finger. Bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. Slaves didn't wear shoes. What did he go home to be? 
a slave. The only ones that would have had shoes were family. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate, for this beloved son of mine was once dead, but now he's alive again. Once he was lost, but now he is found, and everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. But the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned, and he approached the house. He, excuse me, as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. I just want to point out one thing before I finish the story. The son was not on the porch with the dad waiting for the other brother to come home. The son was doing his thing, assuming and probably being okay with the fact that the son had basically wasted his life. So the father said the son was as good as dead, but because of that, he waited and waited and waited and waited and then ran to restore him. The brother, knowing the son was as good as dead, wiped his hands clean and kept going about his business. So he called over the, one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Verse 27, the servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned home and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father came out and pleaded with him, come enjoy the feast with us. The son said, father, listen. How many years have I been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son, and I've never once disobeyed you? But you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends like he's doing now. But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living, and here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. The father said, My son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to celebrate this like this and be overjoyed because this brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he is alive and back with us again. He was lost, now he is found. He was lost, now he's found. None of these stories, none of these stories about the lost being found are about the faithfulness of the one who got themselves lost. None of these parables are about the faithfulness of the coin that got lost and then said, you know what, I should probably go back, and comes back and slides back into the pocketbook. 100% of these stories have nothing to do with, the, if anything, they have all to do with the unfaithfulness of that which was lost. Even the prodigal son the prodigal son made the decision to come home, but let's be he was not going home to be restored as a son. He was going home to beg his father to make him a slave. So even the prodigal son, even though he decided, you know what, I'm going to go home, he was not going home to be what he was before. He was going home to be what he never could have been before. So all of these stories, none of them are about the lost 
uh, being faithful in getting themselves found. All of these parables are about the faithfulness of their owner seeking until he or she found them. Every one of these, every one of these are about the owner finding what had become misplaced. What do we make of this? We've made these stories about us coming to salvation. No, these stories are about salvation coming to us while we were still sinners. These parables are to say, or these parables, um, these are parables to say, you see God with a whip and lightning bolts, but I, Jesus, am here to show you who he truly is, which is Papa willing to take on your Adam identity fully to give you God identity eternally. If you've seen me, you've seen him. He and I are one, is what Jesus says. He refuses to wait until you feel sorry enough about your misplacement to beg to be a slave. He's lighting up every shadow to tell you that you are not a slave, you're a son and daughter. I wasn't taught this God. I was taught the God that's sitting around waiting for me to come to my senses. I was not taught the God that was going to chase me down in every single shadow as long as it took until he found what he lost. God, forgive us for telling the world that you were distant and mad. God, forgive us for telling the world that you were a God that was distant and mad, but Jesus stepped in and took our bullet. This is John 3.16, the Greek says, For God was so loved that on the cosmos He poured His love out in His only Son. If you translate the Greek straight up. For God so loved, in the Greek, I taught this two weeks ago. For God so loved, in the Greek, means for God was so loved that it spilled over. So when it says, for God so loved, it wasn't God saying, man, I just love you. It was God being so full of love because he is love that it poured out into Jesus coming and dying on our behalf. It's massive, massive, massive that the Lord's teaching us. There's one problem with the last story. There's one problem with the last story. We have for years called this the prodigal son. I mean, for years, in most of your Bibles, it probably says the prodigal son. Hope Maybe they've changed it by now, but you know what I'm saying? There's one problem. The dad never calls him prodigal. Show me one, show me one place in this entire story where he's called prodigal. It's not there. That's what religion has called him because we love a good sin conscious. But dad does not label you by what you've done. Dad calls you by who you are, his kid. 
Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I could never be deserve to be called your son. And the first thing the father calls him is son. He says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've wasted. Nothing can change the fact that if you cut, you, if you cut your arm and we take a sample of your blood, your blood and my blood is the same blood. And this is what Yahweh is saying to man today. He's saying, you're not trying to earn salvation in me. I've earned salvation. The job of the church, the job of people, the job of believers is to tell people, I know who you are, and it's this. We're, our job is not to tell people what they've done. Our job is to tell people who they are despite what they've done. What we are great at is telling people what they've done and who they are because of what they've done. What we are terrible, myself included, terrible at is telling people who they are because of what Jesus has done. And this is the shift that he's making in us right now. This is the shift. Is he is shifting us away from this, this, this Adam consciousness always being in the back of our mind. Just always being there. And every single time we mess up, and every single time we, we, we uh, look at something we shouldn't, or every time we tell a lie, or every time we do this, or whatever, every time we're falling back into this Adam mentality that we've got to work our way back out of. And he's getting us to the place that says, Adam doesn't exist anymore. Even when I said that, just now, even when I said that, something in most of you went, uh, I don't know. Check this out. Colossians 1. Let me just, uh, let me tell you what Paul has to say about, about all this. Colossians 1, start at verse 12. And, um, yeah, start at verse 12. Your hearts can soar joyfully with joyful gratitude when you think of how God made you worthy to receive the glorious inheritance freely given to us by living in the light. He has rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom realm of His beloved Son. Now check this verse. You ready for this? You ready for this verse? I don't think y'all are ready for this verse. Man. I'm going to say this, and I might just straight out that door. I feel Pentecostal rising up in me right now. For in the Son, all our sins are canceled, and we have the release of redemption through His very blood. How do we, how, see, how do we reconcile that? With the mentality that every time you mess up, you got to work your way back out. Work your way out of what? There's nothing here. There's nothing here anymore. This took care of that, or else we have to believe that that was more powerful than that. If we don't believe Jesus completely took care of the first bite of a piece of fruit, if we don't believe that, then we have to get to the place where we believe a bite out of a fruit was a lot more powerful than the death of God himself on the cross. And let me tell you something. I don't care what you know about theology. If that is involved in it, it's wrong. This undid this. That's the whole point of it. There was no other reason for the cross except to undo what we had gotten ourselves into by the first Adam. 
So for us to look in the mirror ever again and see this is an illusion. It's crazy. It doesn't exist. That's like me looking in a mirror and saying that I am LeBron James. I've seen myself play basketball. I'm not him. That would be crazy for me to say that, right? No, I'm Josh. But when we look in the mirror and we see ourselves as nasty, the Lord's saying, what are you talking about? Let me keep going. He is the divine portrait, the true likeness of the invisible God, and the firstborn heir of all creation. Wait till you see this video in a second. For in him was created, listen, in him, who? Jesus. Was created the universe of things, both in the heavenly realm and on the earth. All that is seen and all that is unseen was created through him. you got to take some big leaps to say that we've been separated from something we've been created through exclusively. If, if, if I'm separated from God at any point, I no longer exist. Because all things find their existence in Him. There, there are so many ontological, philosophical, and theological problems with how we've believed about this. All of it. Existence... If John 1 is right, which if you're a Christian, I would hope you believe John 1 is right. If John 1 is right, in verse, I believe, 13, don't quote me on that. But in John 1, 13, he says that in him, in him, all things were created and nothing was created apart from him. Good? Which means that my existence, my existence hinges on Jesus. If I was created through him. Like, like, let me give you an example. Veda, our daughter, was created through Jordan and I. More specifically, Jordan. Okay? So Veda was created through Jordan. If you take a time travel back and remove Jordan from history, guess who also ceases to exist? Veda. Because exclusively through Jordan, Veda finds her existence. Physically. You with me? So if you remove Jesus, which if you believe at any point we've been separated from God, you have to. Separate. Separate means you're separated. With me? If you remove Jesus, guess what you also have to remove? Anything created through Jesus. This, I mean, it's not, this isn't some big scientific thing. You right? right? So there's, there's, there's a lot of issues with this. So Jesus did not come so that he could bring everybody back in. He came to make everybody realize they're in. Verse 16, For in him was created the universe, which one more time, both in the heavenly realm and in the earth, all that is seen and unseen, every seat of power, realm of government, principality, and authority. It all exists through him and for his purpose. He existed before anything was made, and now everything finds completion in him. This is the gospel. He is the head of the body, which is the church. Some of your translations say, and he is the head, which separates those thoughts. It does in Greek, and I really like that. So anyway, 
Um, and on top of all that stuff, he's also the body, which is the church, or the head of the body, which is the church. And since he is the beginning and the firstborn heir in resurrection, he is the most exalted one, holding first place in everything. For God is satisfied to have all his fullness dwelling in Christ. And by the blood of the cross, everything in heaven and earth is brought back to himself, back to its original intent, restored to innocence again. That's the Passion Translation. Some of y'all stopped right there, and, uh, and most of it's because they didn't want to take that leap in uh, translating it. So, but, but in this, by the blood of his cross, everything in heaven and earth, uh-oh, we thought the, we thought the big bad world was awful. Oops. Everything is brought back as it was in the beginning. Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. He was the sin payment on your behalf, so that you would dwell in his presence. And now there is nothing between you and Father God, for he sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. If indeed you continue to advance in faith, which is continually living in the realization of everything I just read, assured of a firm foundation to grow upon. Never be shaken from the hope of the gospel. And I believe Paul was looking ahead to maybe a time like this. Never be shaken from the hope of the gospel that you have believed in. This is the glorious news that I preach all over the world. What is the glorious news? That you may not have ever heard who God is, but now you're included. Paul, Paul, Paul is the Jew of all Jews. He's a Pharisee. And he's going to the Greeks who maybe have never heard of God ever in their lives. And he's going not to just tell them who God is. He's going to tell them, hey, guess what, everybody? Now you're in too. This is why the Jews hated this. The Jews were so mad. They, even Peter, they struggled with this because it was like, Y'all haven't had to go through exile and the mountain and the wilderness and everybody dying and Joshua and the whole marching around and trusting and rock from a, water from a rock and all this. Y'all haven't had to go through this. Y'all just get to be in. They hated this. But yet this is what we're called to. This is the love of Jesus. That we, we Gentiles, that we weren't even a part of the original story, yet we've always been a part of the original story. Lord, Lord, Lord. I, man, man. How, let, me, let me ask you this again. I have a few notes that I'm, I'm just praying about whether I should go into them or not. Let me, let me ask you this again. What was the incarnation? Now that we've talked through all this, Jesus becoming flesh. What, what is this? Because I, I, I think we have greatly, greatly devalued it. I, I, I really believe that we have greatly devalued the incarnation. We go through Christmas 
and we make it a whole thing, and we, you sing the songs and all that stuff. And we get through, we don't have a clue what we're talking about. What, what is this that God becomes flesh? The moment that Mary is overshadowed, and here's the announcement that she's about to give birth to the Savior, that moment, that moment in history, we had been on a trajectory towards death because of what Adam and Eve had done centuries before. And the moment Jesus takes a breath in flesh as a baby, everything in the cosmos says we're coming out. And for us to make that about you having unlimited I'm sorry's when you mess up is to stop worlds short of what Jesus actually did. Sure, say sorry when you mess up, the blood will cover it. But listen, if that's where we stop, you're going to have to keep saying sorry the rest of your life. Unless you take the journey from that to what did Jesus actually say when he said it is finished. I believe he looked at that bite of the fruit that bite of, let's say, an apple, because we typically say it's an apple, even though we can't prove that. But, I mean, can you I bet, because God saw it, I, can you, I bet Jesus on the cross thinking about that piece of fruit laying on the ground with the bite out of it. It is finished. When, when they leave the garden, and by the way, man, I have so much writing on this. Adam and Eve did not leave the garden they, didn't leave, they weren't kicked out of the garden because God, God was like, man, y'all really messed up. Get the crud out of my garden. You understand that? Again, it's what we think. It's how we've always been taught. They messed up, and as a consequence of them messing up, God gave them the boot. But one problem, if you read that story, he knits clothes for them. I mean, what, what is this? The reason they left the garden was because in the middle of the garden was the tree of life. So God says, if they take a bite of the tree of life, this identity is permanent. So we've got to block them from this until the one comes who's going to set them free. And when he sets them free, guess what happens? The veil is torn in the temple top to bottom. Now, here's why this is so cool. I taught on this weeks ago when I taught about the temple. What was in the Holy of Holies behind the veil? It was where God was enthroned, seraphim, right? So seraphim, the garden was blocked by seraphim and flaming swords. But do you know what Proverbs calls the Torah, which was in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies? A tree of life. Proverbs 3, I believe. So, in the Holy of Holies is the Torah, full wisdom, tree of life. When Jesus dies, the veil separating everybody else and the place where God was enthroned, including that tree of life, was torn, saying, you were once left out of the garden because I didn't want you to remain like this. Now that I have set this free, you can come back in and eat all you want of it. See, this is, this, is all, this is written all over this, and we've never seen it. This is written top to bottom in this book. Revelation says that Jesus Christ was crucified from the foundation of the earth. What? 
So, oh, so, so God didn't say, man, they really messed up. All right, which one of y'all want to go? Holy Spirit? No, thank you. All right, Jesus, you're up. You know what I'm saying? No. When Adam and Eve messed up, this was part of the plan all along. I, I, listen, listen, I, t- I told somebody this a few weeks ago. I, again, I can't prove it. This might be heretical, so y'all just hang with me. If they, had ne- if they had never taken a bite of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat, I think Jesus would still have come. Because he wasn't coming just to fix the bite. He was coming to solidify identity for eternity. You can't disprove it, so that's okay. I got a video, and uh, so I told y'all, um, and then we'll wrap it up. Matt, you can come up here. You don't have to start playing yet, but um, so I, I told y'all a few weeks ago, Disney movies are more prophetic than I think any song or anything that the church is writing right now. And um, but this movie, we've been watching it a lot. I'm not gonna show you. The whole, I'm gonna show you one minute clip. In this movie, it's Moana. Have y'all seen this? Yeah, yeah. So in this clip, so just hang with me for a second because I might cry after this. In the clip, in the movie, Mo- Moana is this girl. She's like a nobody. You know what I mean? She's like we. I mean, just like she's just a nobody. And um, but her her dad, let's call him religion. <laughs> her dad is telling her, "No, you're going to be chief. Like this is who you're going to be. Sorry, you were born into this. This is who you are. This is what you're going to be." But there's something in her. There's a voice in her that says, "I'm called for the wild, for the ocean." And there's just this back and forth of like what they're telling her she should be and what she knows she should be. Well, eventually she goes against this and goes out, you know, into the water. And, and um, anyway, and her island's dying. And so as her island's dying, dying you know, they, they go out. Anyway, they find Maui, which I'm not a huge fan of the whole idea of that. But anyway, anyway, you're just hang with me. She finds him. Long story short, he leaves, comes back. But anyway, so they make it to this place where the heart of this, you know, thing was was stolen. And because the heart was stolen, everything in creation started dying. Lord, 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 Lord. Okay? So she travels, risk her life, the daughter, for the fun of it, let's just say the son of the chief, but but the daughter, the kid, travels across this great divide to where this thing was that had once given life to creation, but now because somebody that wasn't supposed to touch it had stolen its heart was now causing death to creation. And she travels across to restore its heart. So play it, and I want you to see what she says. This is the greatest gospel thing I've ever heard in my life. So, yeah, hopefully it plays. Devil, I rebuke you right now. Yeah, and turn it up a little bit.
Aha. Do you see that? Do you see that? This thing had lost its everlasting, burning, burning with fire. And this is not who you are. Ah, what, if, what if that was the gospel we gave the world? What if that was the gospel we bought into? Burnt, burnt chaos everywhere, killing everything in its path. This is not who you are. You know who you are. They've stolen the heart from inside you. But this doesn't define you. I mean, man, even during the chaos of last summer, during all the race stuff, you know what the church was arguing about? Whether or not it was right to talk about race. What if we, instead of having talks about nonsense, what if instead we had looked creation in the eye and say, you know who you are. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is, this is what the Lord is solidifying in me right now, and I hope he's doing in you. And I went back and forth this week on whether or not we should save this for the fall when everybody comes back and this room is slammed. Because that's what's going to happen in about two months. Everybody's going to come back. This room's going to be packed front to back. But the Lord said, no, 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 no. Do you all remember, some of you weren't here, back in November when it was our five-year, or uh, going into our fourth year, I taught on Leviticus. I don't know if you remember this. And when I taught on it, in Leviticus, it says, when you go into the land and you plant a tree for three years, you don't touch it. You let it grow. On the fourth year, you take 100% of its fruit and dedicate it to the Lord. But then on the fifth year, which we're about to hit, by the way, in November, in the fifth year, you can start eating from the, from, the, uh, from the fruit of it. And he says, if you do this, your fruit will multiply over and over and over and over. And the Lord said, as I'm, I'm telling you, this, I haven't made statements like I'm about to make in a long time. But this is, this is a prophetic word for America right now. That if we can get this, God is love that if we can get that, we will never have to pray for revival again. If we can get this, we'll never have to have a stadium gathering to get thousands to repeat a prayer ever again. You know why? Because every single person in America knows who they are. They just gotta have somebody, Lord, who's willing to cross the divide and risk their lives to tell them this is who you are. This is Jesus. Jesus crosses this great divide, which actually wasn't that great for him. But for us, this great divide and on the cross, can you, can you just hear this when he says it is finished? Father, forgive them. They don't know. Can you hear the, Jesus saying, this is not who you are. I know who you are. It is finished. Well, brother, how can you make Moana? Listen, I don't, I don't give three flips about making Moana anything. What I do care about is you and I being convinced of this. It's, it is illegal for us to celebrate and cheer the cross if we don't live as if Adam is dead now because of the cross. This is why, listen, 
all who believe in me shall not perish but have eternal life. How do we have eternal life? Because the one that death came through no longer exists. So, so we're not awaiting death anymore. We're just awaiting more life. So when you die, you don't die. You step into a greater measure of life than you had before. This is what God has done in creation. And we've made him five billion miles that way and disappointed and mad. And we've got to live up to some behavior standard to appease him all the time. This is what we have made him. And this is not who he is either. I almost almost feel the Lord doing in us the same thing. Where not only are we hearing the whispers, this is not who you are. We're also singing the whispers, I know this is not who you are. What I thought was you is not who you are. I mean, I've, I've wept and wept. I read, I've read Luke 15 this week a hundred times, I think, in every translation that is available. And every time I, I just The coin never lost its value. And it, listen, you ready? It never lost the image inscribed on it. It was simply misplaced. And God, through Jesus says, I will flip every couch over until I find my coin. It's not enough for me to have 99% of my coins. I will chase until I find. Here's the other thing. We've got a question about the gospel. This is what Jesus says. Because I think some of us have family members that maybe we've given up on or friends that we have given up on. We think it's hopeless. I have those. We think it's completely hopeless. And here's what Jesus says. The shepherd left the 99 lambs out in the open field and searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb. He did not stop until he found it. There's not one person on this earth, not one person that is a hopeless situation because God does not say, if you want me, I'm here. If not, gave you the opportunity. No, he's saying, I will chase you. I will annoy you. I will find you in every nook and cranny and crevice until you realize who you are. This is what separates Christianity from all, I said this a few weeks ago, from all the other, all the other religions All the other religions have a God, a fake God. I mean, Buddha, who's just eating and eating and eating and eating. I'm just kidding. And um, have all these other gods sitting there saying, what can you give me? Christianity, God is saying, what can I give you? You know that song we sing sometimes, I just want to move your heart? The bridge the bridge of that song, and I've listened to this over and over and over and over and over. From him says, is it a fragrance? Then I will pour my oil out. Is it a life laid down? Then here I give my vows. Is it a song I sing? Here's every melody. I just want to move you. We'll sing that song and we'll say, Lord, Lord, I just want to, what can I do to move you? And he's saying, no, 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 you don't get it. 
what can I do to move you? Every time we get to that part in the bridge, I just cry. Is it a song I sing? I'm not just gonna give you the song you want. Here, fine, take all of them. Take every melody. I just wanna move your heart. Get caught up in your gaze. Right here in your presence is where I wanna stay. Spend my hours and my days on you. Just bow your heads for a minute. Oh man, I want to waste my hours and my days on you. That's where I wake up in the secret place. Just keep your eyes closed just for a minute. I wake up in the secret place every morning, every morning, and I hear desperation in his voice for me. Desperation, fascination, obsession in his voice for me. And it has, it has rewired every single thing about my life. Everything. So now when I'm playing with my daughter or we're walking around in the zoo or we're eating dipping dots, whatever we're doing, when we're doing that, suddenly that has become worship. Or I see birds flying through the air. I see, I've seen this lately, but birds flying through the air just playing with each other. And I just hear the whisper, what do you want? Six years ago, the Lord found me when I was, it's more almost seven years ago, found me when I was on the pinnacle of ministry success. Leading worship in front of thousands a week, signing autographs, taking pictures, releasing albums, doing the whole thing, and broken as I could possibly be on the inside, completely broken. And this is, this is how the Lord transformed me. One morning I was laying at 4 a.m., 4 a.m. when Jordan was asleep, laying in our apartment's breakfast room area, because it wasn't a big apartment, laying in the floor. And I heard him whisper, this is not who you are. But I know who you are. You are Joshua. God is salvation. You will lead my people into the promised land. I hid, I hid that. I've hidden that since we started this church. 
And I told the Lord the reason I hid that was because I didn't want it to sound prideful. And this week he said, you hiding that is more pride than anything you've done in your life. Because the other part of the mass exodus word that I had a few weeks ago was that. That the Lord is sending us through a mass exodus, leaving Egypt, leaving a mass freedom. And in case you needed confirmation about him doing that, he picked the least qualified person on planet earth to lead this thing who happens to be named Joshua. And it says nothing about me, but it says everything about you. God is love. We're leaving Adam. And we will dwell in Yahweh. Yeshua. The one who was and is and is to come. The same, Hebrew says, yesterday, today, and forever. The one who before the foundations of the cosmos chose us in love. <laughs> 